Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter chapter podcast, going through a song of ice and fire one chapter. I'm your host Jeff, there's Brady Fish, and I'm your other host Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 148th episode of the podcast, titled "King of Ashes," an analysis of a Clash of Kings, Tyrion 15, in which Tyrion has some good dreams some bad dreams and then of course he wakes up to his shitty shitty new reality Mm. the only solution there is to go right back to sleep but unfortunately (laughs) Tyrion does not have that luxury just just pull up the blankets and wait for it not to be monday anymore but for Tyrion, yep it's only gonna get worse every day is going to be monday in a storm of swords for Tyrion, isn't it (laughs) that pretty much defines Tyrion's arc going forward yes every single day is monday (laughs) Mm, cannot wait to get to those chapters with you, sir. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Arch Maester June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscombe, Scarlet the Other Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, War of the West, Harold the Golden Tooth, Master of the Beanfort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James the Gym that was promised, Lord Jake assisted to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dan, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High, High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Warren, the Eastern Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lee Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew, the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Tit Stent, the Troctolite Warrior, Lord Penchant for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Ambassador to Chromatica, Raymu Commander, the Thades, and General Lems, Haldover, the Wave for T-Wow, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron, Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Golgarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee, the Great Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kings, Blender Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Harren Hall, Ola, Proponent of Establishing a Feudal, Pseudo-Democratic System of Great Councils wherein every count votes, Sir Tim, the Knight Who is Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Pat Armwood, the Blood Royal, and Guardian of the Boneway, Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, War in the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf, and the Pillar of Autumn, Master of Zorus, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North, and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt S., Future Matt S., the one who bring balance to the kingdoms, B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Blackberry the Bull, Champion of Feel Good Times, Lady Ivory Dane, Aspiring Noble Author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warners of the South, and Patron of Free Willing Bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, She Who Suggests That Coconuts Migrate, Lord Christoph of Arendelle, Official Ice Master and Deliverer, The Valiant Pungent Reindeer King, Keeper of Feisty Pants, and Prince Consort to His Ginger Sweet Love, Queen Anna, and Lord Sir Septon Ruthers. Thank you to all our not a small counselors. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially talk about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Pat D., a High Lord patron, who asks, I love the story being retold in different ways. What do you think about the Loras slash Marjorie and Jamie slash Cersei parallels? That's a good question. What do you think about that, Jeff? What's going on with the... Loras and Marjorie, is, is uh, George tried to draw like a salacious parallel with the Lannisters, or is, <laughs> is there something more innocent going on? It's interesting because Loras and Marjorie are interesting secondary characters. Obviously, Jamie and Cersei become point of view characters later in the story. George has said he's not going to have any additional point of view characters beyond his current cast, at least as of 2018. I think it was the last time he said that. So don't imagine we're going to get Loris and Marjorie's interior thoughts beyond that which they voice to other point of view characters, namely probably Jamie and Cersei. So what do I think about them as parallels to to the Lannisters, the Tyrells as, as Lannisters? I mean, what is it that, that Danto says the, the Tyrells are flowers, but they still have thorns? They're basically like the same way as, as the Lannisters are. Sure. I... I, I, I <laughs> 
I think that comparison is a touch overblown because we don't actually see Loris and Marjorie doing the same terrible things that Jamie and Cersei do. Now, that's not to say that the Tyrells are not child murderers, that they're not people who starve peasants, that they're not people who have a essentially noble view of the small folk the same way that the that the Lannisters do. At the same time, George, I think, intentionally parallels them. Uh, but it's interesting because Loras and Marjorie are, are younger than Jamie and Cersei. So I, what I kind of wonder, and I'll, and I'll toss this question over to you. Do you think that these two characters are what Jamie and Cersei were when they were 16 slash 18 years old, maybe? Is that what George is doing here? That's what I was wondering, because to a certain extent, yes, Jamie directly says that at one point when he's talking to Loras. Oh, he's me. I'm talking to myself <laughs> as I was. This is, what it, this is what it does to you, he says, to be too good, too young. I think that is true to a certain extent. Cersei was already murdering her best friend when she was <laughs> a child. So we don't get any indication that Marjorie is like that. So with Cersei, it, there seems to have been it baked into a cake to a, baked into the cake to a certain extent. Especially because she was imitating her father in the most kind of aggressive and violent manner possible. And whatever you want to say about Mace Tyrell, he's just not that. He's just he's just kind of a very mild man, even when he's doing sleazy things of his own. So Marjorie never had that kind of lion with the claws out model to imitate. And Loras doesn't either. Now, what happens to Loras if you put him in service to someone like the Mad King? I think that's the question, because that seemed to really be the decisive factor for Jamie. I don't know. Obviously, we like to talk shit about Renly, but, you know, he's not Mad King level, and there's never any indication he was going to trend in that direction. Who knows if Loras would ever see the kind of dreadful service that would shape him into someone like the Kingslayer. I think instead, Loras, if, if, you know, if no drama had ever happened, if, if Loras had been able to serve Renly or some other reasonable, unobjectionable king to him for the rest of his days, I think he would have ended up the same way Jamie would have ended up if he had never served the tyrant. Jamie would have ended hmm. up just kind of like an arrogant, foppish, young asshole. Like, you know, not the worst guy in the world, not the best guy in the world. And that's that's who probably Loras would be. But, you know, instead he went off the Dragonstone. There's a big question mark there. I think many people have speculated what might have happened to Loras. Maybe the rumors of the attack are faked. Maybe they're not. But if Loras did go through some kind of devastating injury while taking Dragonstone, maybe that's going to be his Jamie losing a hand moment. Hmm. And he, the, the parallel will emerge strongly there. Now, Loras and Marjorie as a relationship, I don't think, have anything to, you know, mm -hmm. compare to Jamie and Cersei, in part just because Loras is gay, but also because there's the... The Tyrells seem to function as a unit really just effectively, much more so than the mm -hmm. Lannisters or really other noble houses we see functioning at that level. The Tyrells seem to have worked out their 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 kinks, so to speak, uh, with each mm -hmm. other. So Loras and Marjorie, I, I imagine they, I imagine they, they, they get along just fine, and I don't think there's the same kind of codependent need for each other slash repulsion for each other you see with Jamie and Cersei. So yeah, the, the, the Tyrells, yeah, the Tyrells, I think, do have a lot in common with the Lannisters, but I also agree the Lannisters have this more kind of almost like Southern Gothic or or Mafia, like we've said before, this kind of twisted layer of, of excess and ruin, <laughs> where the Tyrells seem to have in mind, okay, we got to be around in a generation <laughs> to reap the rewards of this stuff, whereas the Lannisters are just partying like it's it's 1999 at all times. And I think like the Tyrells have a longer view of, like you were, you were talking about, like they're, they're, they want to exist to the next generation, where the Lannisters are mostly existing for themselves in their, in their current generation, despite Tywin's hypocritic protestations to, to the to the contrary. It's interesting that when we get to A Feast for Crows, Cersei will think at one point, oh, I wonder if Loras and Marjorie are having sex. And it's like, ah, well, that is such a crime. And it's it's kind of one of those hilarious like Cersei moments where you're like, right, what? <laughs> but at the same time, you know, there's there's been a, and I'm going to butcher the theory, but I think there's there's been a recent theory by, oh man, I'm going to, I might have to cut this out of the episode proper, but there's the recent theory <laughs> that Marjorie is, is that her lover is actually R.A. Waters. I don't know if you've, you've heard that one, because at one point, like, uh, yeah, right. in on, it was, I it's by, that. um, I, I can't remember the person who did it. And, and, and I actually, I can actually picture Amanda, Amanda, um, from, uh, Crow Food, Crow Food, uh, Oh, it's, oh, it's Crow Food's daughters, right. I forgot that. Crow Food's daughters, yeah. It was hers. Okay, yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
so she has that interesting theory, which of course parallels what Cersei is doing with the Kettleblack brothers. Which ones? I don't know. It's hard really to kind of keep them keep them straight. But I think it's an interesting idea that we have Marjorie kind of doing the same thing that Cersei's doing in a feast for crows, and potentially seeing some fallout from that right. when we get to back to the King's Landing and the Windswinder. So it's it's something I'm I'm really interested in seeing more of those Tyrell Lancer parallels, especially in, in the Windswinder when the Tyrells really are going to reach the cusp of their power, same way as the Lancers have here at the end of A Clash of Kings. Agreed. And there's the the Marjorie-Anne Boleyn parallels that people have pointed out before. And Anne Boleyn was, you know, she supposedly uh, had sex with her brother, or at least that was, that mm. was the part, part of the charges laid against her. So that could be just George kind of referencing that and referencing how it might have been true, it might have been not true, but the point was this is what people were using against her. So that could definitely be part of it. Thank you so much to Pat for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we'll answer here on the Not A Cast podcast. You are welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where you can get show notes, free merch, access to the Not A Slack at our two highest tiers, and bonus episodes like our most recent episode analyzing Zack Snyder's uncontroversial 2013 film, <laughs> Man of Steel. Yeah, that episode was a lot of fun. And that episode also titled Already Dead is out for all of our poor fellow and above patrons right now at patreon.com forward slash Toticast A-S-O-I-A-F. So check that out. Anyways, enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Tyrion Lannister, he had narrowly avoided immediate death from Manded Moore's Blade. Let's see if he makes it through this chapter in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 15. He dreamed of a cracked stone, ceiling, and the smells of blood and shit and burnt flesh. The air was full of acrid smoke. Men were groaning and whimpering all around him, and from time to time a scream would pierce the air thick with pain. When Tyrion tried to move, he found that he had fouled his own bedding. The smoke in the air made his eyes water. Am I crying? He must not let his father see. He was a Lannister of Castle Rock, a lion. I must be a lion, live a lion, die a lion. He hurt so much, though. Too weak to groan, he lay in his own filth and shut his eyes. Nearby, someone was cursing the gods in a heavy, monotonous voice. He listened to the blasphemies and wondered if he was dying. After a time, the room faded. In the dream or real world, Tyrion finds himself outside of King's Landing with ravens circling and crows and maggots eating the dead. Silent sisters strip the bodies of their clothes and toss the dead into funeral pyres. My work, thought Tyrion Lannister. They, they died at my command. At first, there was no sound in the world, but after a time, he began to hear the voices of the dead, soft and terrible. They wept and moaned. They begged for an end to pain. They cried for help in one of their mothers. Tyrion had never known his mother. He wanted Shay, but she was not there. He walked alone amidst gray shadows, trying to remember. The Silent Sisters continued to strip the dead of all their beautiful, colorful armor and surcoats and replace it with white and gray with black blood bleeding through the bleached colors. And then the bodies of the slain are tossed into funeral pyres. There were so many dead. They had black hearts, gray lions, dead flowers, and ghostly stags sewn onto them. Their armor was beaten up, and Tyrion knew why he had killed them, but now he's forgotten. Tyrion tries to ask one of the Silent Sisters, but he has no mouth to speak. Skin covers his teeth, and he's terrified that he won't have a mouth at all. He runs toward the city to escape the dead, but when he reaches the city gates, they are locked. He wakes up in the dark, unable to see anything. Tyrion realizes he's in bed, his own bed of sorts, but he feels feverish and weak. Tyrion feels pain when he tries to move his arm, but he can't really feel the rest of his body. Tyrion tries to remember how he ended up here, and he remembers flashes of the Battle of the Blackwater, and then he remembers someone else at the battle. Sir Mandon. He saw the dead, empty eyes, the reaching hand, the green fire shining against the white enamel plate. Fear swept over him in a cold rush. Beneath the sheets, he could feel his bladder letting go. He would have cried out if he had a mouth. No, th th that was the dream, he thought, his head pounding. H help me! S someone help me! J Jamie! Shay! Mother! Someone! Taisha! But no one hears or comes. Tyrion falls back to sleep in his bed of piss. He dreams of Cersei and Lord Tywin standing over the bed. This was very definitely a dream because Tywin was very far away. Varas and Littlefinger show up and he can hear their voices, but not the words. He realizes that the Lancers won the battle as his head isn't on a spike, and he gets nearly giddy that his wits are still present. The next time he wakes up, he finds Podrick Payne standing over him. Pod sees Tyrion's eyes open and runs away. Tyrion tries to call after the boy, but he can't as he has no mouth, or more accurately, his mouth is bandaged over. Pod returns with a maester who tells Tyrion to stay still, but would Tyrion like a nice little drink? Tyrion nods, and the maester inserts a funnel through a hole in the bandage. Too late, Tyrion realizes that this is milk of the poppy, and he passes out. This time, he dreamed he was at a feast, 
a victory feast in some great hall. He had a high seat on the dais, and men were lifting their goblets and hailing him as hero. Marillion was there, the singer who journeyed with them through the mountains of the moon. He played his wood harp and sang of the imp's daring deeds. Even his father was smiling with approval. When the song was over, Jamie rose from his place, commanded Tyrion to kneel, and touched him first on one shoulder and then on the other with his golden sword. And he rose up a knight. Shay was waiting to embrace him. She shook him by the hand, laughing and teasing, calling him her giant of Lannister. Tyrion wakes in the darkness again and knows that something is wrong. He tries to sit up in his lonely room, but it was too much pain to do so. So he slumps back down. He realizes that his entire right side is in agonizing pain, and he thinks he's more hurt than he remembered. Was that Mandon Moore's fault? The thought of Mandon Moore makes Tyrion afraid, but he refuses to push the memory side. Mandon Moore had tried to kill Tyrion, but Podrick Payne had saved him. P.S. Where is Pod? Tyrion reaches up and rips the drapes down, but he finds that effort dizzying. He realizes that he's not in the Tower of the Hand. He's been moved, and he thinks they brought him into this room to die. He passes out again. In his dream, Tyrion flashes back to a cottage by the sunset sea where Tysha teases Tyrion about being a lazy servant for not feeding the fire. Tysha states that lazy servants get beaten at Castle Rock, but Tyrion insists that lazy servants get kissed at Castle Rock. Hmm, I wonder who's telling it true here. Real mystery. Tyrion then proceeds to kiss Tysha's fingers, wrists, and the insides of her elbows, ears, cheeks, noses, chin, and then mouths. They would kiss for days, exploring each other's bodies, and then they would both declare how they would love each other, all parts of each other. Tyrion, Tysha loves Tyrion's face and his cock, especially when it's inside of her. It loves you too, my lady. I love to say your name. Tyrion Lannister. It goes with mine, not the Lannister, the other part. Tyrion and Tysha, Tysha and Tyrion, Tyrion, my lord Tyrion. Lies, he thought, all feigned, all for gold. She was a whore, Jamie's whore, Jamie's gift, my lady of the lie. Her face seemed to fade away, dissolving behind a veil of tears. But even after she was gone, he could still hear the faint, far-off sound of her voice calling his name. My lord, can you hear me? My lord, Tyrion, my lord, my lord. Tyrion wakes up to a soft pink face that was not Tysha's over him. Sad. It's the maester, and he wants to know if Tyrion wants his milk. The maester leans in too close, and then Tyrion grabs the chain and starts strangling the maester, telling him that he wants no more milk with the poppy. The maester's face goes purple, and then, tight, then Tyrion lets go. Tyrion raises his hands to his face to indicate that he wants the bandages off, but the maester is reluctant because the queen wouldn't like that. Tyrion threatens to crush the maester if he doesn't do as Tyrion bids. The maester warns against it, but heads out of the room and brings the knife back to cut the bandages away. After a few minutes of sawing, Tyrion feels cold air on his cheeks. The maester tells Tyrion that he needs to clean the wound and it will hurt. And sure enough, it does hurt. The maester maintains that it would have been better to leave the mask on until the wound was healed, but he admits that the wound looks clean. They weren't sure that Tyrion was going to make it exactly when they had been brought when he had been found among the dead and dying in a cellar. Plus, Tyrion had broken a rib and had an arrow wound to his arm, but the maggots and boiling wine had saved Tyrion's life and his arm. Tyrion demands to know a name. Not his name, no, the Maester's name. Why, he's Maester Balabar. Okay, Maester Balabar, get Tyrion a mirror. Balabar recommends no no no, don't do that. But Tyrion demands and the Maester relents. Also, Tyrion wants something to drink. Wine, not milk of the poppy. The maester rose, flush-faced, and hurried off. He came back with a flagon of pale amber wine and a small silver-looking glass in an ornate golden frame. Sitting on the edge of the bed, he poured half a cup of wine and held it to Tyrion's swollen lips. The trickle went down cool, though he could hardly taste it. More, he said when the cup was empty. Maester Balabar poured again. By the end of his second cup, Tyrion Lannister felt strong enough to face his face. He turned over the glass and did not know whether he ought to laugh or cry. The gash was long and crooked, starting a hair under his left eye and ending on the right side of his jaw. Three quarters of his nose was gone and a chunk of his lip. Someone had sewn the torn flesh together with catgut, and the clumsy stitches were still in place across the, across the seam of raw red half-healed flesh. Pretty, he croaked, flinging the glass aside. But now Tyrion remembers the bridge of boats, Sir Mandamore and the sword he tried to use against Tyrion. Mandon was the most dangerous of the king's guard, but Tyrion had hoped he wasn't one of Cersei's creatures. But Cersei must have paid him to try to kill him, right? Probably not. Balabar says that Tyrion will most likely have a scar, which, duh, Tyrion would have a scar and only half a nose. Where is Tyrion, by the way? Why, Makers Holdfast above Cersei's ballroom. Cersei wanted Tyrion close to so totally watch over him. Yeah, Tyrion is quite sure she did, but now he wants to go back to his chambers in the Tower of the Hand. Well, that's not quite possible. The, um, King's Hand is living there now? I am King's Hand. 
He was growing exhausted by the effort of speaking and confused by what he was hearing. Maester Balabar looked distressed. No, no, my lord, I, you, you were wounded near death. Your lord father has taken up those duties now. Lord Tywin, he... Here. Since the end of the battle, Lord Tywin saved us all. The small folk say it was King Renly's ghost, but wiser men know better. It was your lord father and Lord Tyrell with the Knight of Flowers and Lord Littlefinger. They rode through the ashes and took the usurper Stannis in the rear. It was a great victory, and now Lord Tywin has settled into the Tower of the Hand to help his grace set the realm to rights. Gods be praised. Gods be praised, Tyrion repeated hollowly. Tyrion repeated hollowly. Hollow. Tyrion repeated hollowly. So Tywin was truly here at King's Landing. So who does Tyrion want to see now? Not Shay, Varys, Bronn, or Sir Jaslyn. He wants Podrick Payne, who saved his life. Balabar heads off to find Podrick as Tyrion feels weakness flowing back into him. But he can't sleep or Cersei will get him for good. Podrick shows up apologizing for not staying by Tyrion's side, but the maester sent him away. Tyrion wants Balabar sent away from him now. He wants Maester Franken here instead, and he wants his guard to include Bronn. They made him a knight, even frowning her. Find him. Bring him. As you say, my lord, Bronn. Tyrion asks after Sir Mandon, and Pod starts sputtering that he would never meant to, you know, kill. But Tyrion just wants to know if he's dead. Yes, he drowned. Good. Say nothing of him, of me, any of it. Nothing. By the time his squire left, the last of Tyrion's strength was gone as well. Tyrion lay back and closed his eyes. Perhaps he would dream of Tysha again. I wonder how she'd like my face now, he thought bitterly. And I know that's kind of short, but that is the synopsis for A Clash of Kings Tyrion 15. You know, among these point of view conclusions for A Clash of Kings, Tyrion's is the one that feels the most like a chapter where George simply broke the Tyrion chapters he had already written and chose this one as his conclusion for A Clash of Kings. What did you think, sir? I totally agree. I think you can definitely tell that this kind of chapter melts into Tyrion's Storm of Swords storyline at the end. We start bringing up how everyone's going to react to Tyrion's new face. Podrick brings up Bronn being a knight. But I do think this works within the context of A Clash of Kings. Tyrion's storyline in A Clash of Kings parallels Ned's story in A Game of Thrones. Both of them are hands of the king, protagonist of their respective books, each with 15 chapters tracing their rise and fall. Ned's ninth chapter featured an action scene in the streets, Jaime's ambush, and so did Tyrion's ninth chapter in this book, The Bread Riots. In Ned's twelfth chapter, he has a one-on-one -on -one showdown with Cersei. So does Tyrion in his twelfth chapter in this book. Now we arrive at the end to find one more parallel. Ned's fifteenth and final chapter, as we covered back in the day with our friend Lauren aka Shakespeare of Thrones, is a bittersweet epilogue to his story. Our hero is wounded and alone in the dark hallucinating confrontations with the events and people that have shaped him. Lo and behold, Tyrion's 15th and final chapter works the same way. It's a fever dream. Between the battle and the milk of the poppy, Tyrion is left unstuck in time and space, wandering through the past, the present, and the projected future. Ned, of course, was winding down the clock to death. At the end of Tyrion's storyline, he has to literally face himself and prepare to live once more. Yeah, and I love that strain of parallel storytelling that George does with Tyrion and Ned between A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings. It's wonderful stuff that he'd been pointing out throughout our journey with Tyrion and Clash. The early parts of the chapter with Tyrion having skin sewn over his teeth and the bleached colors from the battle work as metaphorical storytelling, similar to another character that we covered in A Game of Thrones, that is namely Danny's penultimate chapter in A Game of Thrones with her visions after entering Miri Ma's Doors 10. Along that same strand of parallel storytelling, we entered Clash with Tyrion thinking that he could do better than Ned Stark, that he wouldn't make the same mistakes that Ned did. And yet here, Tyrion is trusted Mandy more similar to Ned trusting Littlefinger, and he's alone in the dark, only saved by the quick thinking of Podrick Payne. In terms of storytelling, Tyrion has gone on quite a journey into Clash of Kings, but he started his story near the top of the Game of Thrones, and now he's here at the bottom, cast away in Sheol. That's the physical part of his journey. The emotional journey has paralleled the physical journey too, quite nicely in my opinion. Tyrion is forgotten, barely mentioned in the ceremony Sansa witnessed back in her final chapter, and soon his role in saving King's Landing will be airbrushed entirely out by Tywin. This is a physical and emotional tragedy for Tyrion, and as we head into A Storm of Swords, this is laying a significant foundation for Tyrion's clear villainous turn, as I might be talking about later in the episode. <laughs> 
I agree, and you can see some interesting parallels between Tyrion and a POV who was already in villainous territory, Theon. Theon 6 last week ended in fire and blood. As Tyrion 15 opens, it's as if nothing has changed. The mood and imagery are the same, a nightmare half-concealed by the fog of war. North or south, it makes no difference, linking the Battle of Blackwater and the Sack of Winterfell together. Just as Theon plunged from prince to prisoner, his face shattered by Ramsay's gauntlet, Tyrion's own facial wound has stripped away his political power, right at the moment he needed it the most. The hand of the king has been tossed into a cellar with the dead and dying. It smells like shit. Everyone is sobbing or cursing the gods. This is war as hell. In absolute contrast to the heavenly finery and triumphant spirits on display in the throne room in Sansa 8. The man who made that victory possible has been abandoned to fester in his own filth, while, as you say, his father takes credit for everything he did. <laughs> but only the reader is aware of that at first. Tyrion isn't, because his wound has reduced his mental capacities. He drifts in and out of consciousness. As the chapter opens, he thinks he's dreaming. Sadly, he's not. The cracked stone ceiling and the pain all over his body are very real. But it feels like a dream. That's the state he's in. So when he slips into an actual dream, it feels like a natural progression. No real difference. Tyrion wonders if he's dying. We might be wondering the same thing, given where we left him, bleeding out on the bridge of ships. As such, his first dream feels like a journey to the land of death. He wanders outside the city, surrounded by dead soldiers heaped high. As I've said over and over again while covering A Clash of Kings, this is a book about color. Waves of rainbow light invading the noir palette of A Game of Thrones. I've been emphasizing that because of the shock when it all gets taken away. Tyrion, the book's protagonist, is now in, quote, a world without color. The beautiful colors that defined Karth Brand's wolf dreams, an egret story about Bale the Bard, are replaced by white maggots burrowing through black corruption. Joie de Vivre gives way to Memento Mori. This is the fall, the broken state of mankind, experienced in this story most literally by our protagonist Bran, but metaphorically by everyone else. In this chapter, it applies above all to the Knights of Summer. Of all the splashes of color in A Clash of Kings, None had more of an impact than the rainbow of Renly's camp in the Reach, the banners blazing brightly above the young and the beautiful as they sang their way to glory. They thought they would never die, that the songs and stories would make them immortal. Now look at them. Corpses drained of color. The bright dyes have faded, their armor is stripped away, and then their flesh. Their faces barely even look human. The tourney field where Sansa watched the jousts have become a graveyard. Chivalry is dead, and this is its tomb. Even the ships themselves have somehow died, despite never being alive. Their wooden beams described as charred bones sinking in <laughs> the river. Who did this? Who broke the world? My work, thought Tyrion Lannister. They died at my command. This is the first time George uses Tyrion's name in the chapter, as if to emphasize that this is who Tyrion is now. His identity is inextricable from the bodies burning all around. Why did he kill them? He tries to remember. George tells us why in the first paragraph. Am I crying? He must not let his father see. He was a Lannister of Casterly Rock. A lion, I must be a lion, live a lion, die a lion. Tyrion sent thousands shrieking down to hell for the same reason Theon butchered those boys up north. To belong. To make Dad proud. Tyrion has spent the book trying to live up to the proud lion on their banners. But now the colors have bled from the banners, and his father will never be proud of him. It has all come to nothing. Per the great poem Ozymandias, the, the lines everyone likes to quote whenever things go wrong for protagonists, on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. 
And so Tyrion is left without a mouth. A skin-crawling nightmare image that robs Tyrion of his wit, the tool he uses to try and make his way in the world. He is literally without a voice, unable to tell his own story, justify himself. And the city gates are closed against him. He is now unwelcome in the land of the living. Well said. And I think maybe this is me being dumb, but I spent a significant amount of time reading and rereading the scene to try and figure out whether this was Tyrion experiencing the actual aftermath of the battle as it happened, or whether this is his subconscious mind dreaming and kind of pulling these disconnected pieces together to form a dream, the same way that most dreams exist for for people these days. Now, in in retrospect, I I do think it is a dream, but there are a number of striking details. The silent sisters stripping the bodies, the funeral pyres Mm -hmm. that it occurs outside of the walls of King's Landing where Tyrion was wounded that had me wondering. However, by the time we get to the end of the chapter where when Maester Balabar talks about finding Tyrion in a cellar with the dead and dying as opposed to wandering outside of the walls, it makes it clear that this is in Tyrion's subconscious rather than a memory. At the same time, the draining of colors, the crows and maggots, the silent sisters, this is the abattoir of the back of the Blackwater. In that drainage of in that drainage of colors, we're seeing George deliberately contrast the ceremony which Sansa witnesses. The bright colors, the crowded throne room, the high lords and ladies in their finery, Tywin Lannister in his horses and his horse in dazzling armor. All of that grandeur was built on the mountains of dead outside of the walls. It's almost as if the victors of the Blackwater are vampires sucking the blo- sucking the color, the blood of the slain to feed their own gaudy, self-satisfied celebration. It pisses me off. I'm sorry. Amidst all of the celebration occurring in front of the Iron Throne, Tyrion, the true architect of the delaying action of the battle, the one that actually won the day that allowed Tywin and the Tyrells to arrive just in the nick of time to actually push Stannis off the field of battle, Tyrion is left in the dark, uncared for, and mostly unattended. That's great, man. I love that image of drainage, of sucking it away like they're ticks, or like mm. it's like it's there will be blood, and he's got he's got the oil from under your land, like your milkshake. They they're, they're just they're taking all of, all of the exactly they're taking all of the color and all of the life. It's all theirs, and it's taken away, and it's taken away from Tyrion too, as we see in this chapter. So when Tyrion wakes up next, he is back in his bedchamber, the familiar environment reassembling itself out of dream shards, like Proust. He can only interpret his foggy mental state as fever. The flashlight cannot shine upon itself. His shell-shocked mind can't understand what happened to it. The battle comes back to him in pieces, culminating in the dreadful vision of Mandon Moore. The trauma causes Tyrion's mind to fall away, again blurring the border between reality and dreams. Suddenly it seems like he has no mouth in reality. (laughs) Tyrion's mind is his weapon. Gradually, he is able to sharpen it once more. He realizes they must have won the battle, or he'd be ahead on a spike somewhere. These are the fruits of his victory, painfully struggling back towards consciousness. That's all Tyrion gets from the Battle of Blackwater. In the process, he catches a glimpse of the people taking over his life. Cersei, Tywin, Littlefinger, and the maester keeping him drugged to the gills. The milk of the poppy sends Tyrion back into his dreams, this time a happier one. A victory feast where everyone is cheering Tyrion's name. Marillion is there to sing his praises, Jaime is there to knight him, Shay is there to love and fuck him. Even Tywin is there, smiling at him for once. George is expanding on Tyrion's earlier desire to live and die as a lion. This is all Tyrion ever wanted. The pack. Love, praise, a sense of home and self. It's bittersweet, not only because this dream is being denied, but because in reality, the exact opposite is happening. The victory feast is going on without Tyrion, while he lies here, comfortably numb. The song is being rewritten to remove him. You know, you you mentioned the pack earlier, and that just brought me to this mind, this idea that Tyrion would fit in really well with with the Starks, who probably would Mm. not, would would celebrate him, would be like, actually, this guy did a lot of good work for us, and... um, you know, here, you could be a knight, whatever. We don't really take the knighthood up in the north, but fuck it. Yeah, you could be a knight if you want to. It doesn't really matter <laughs> to us. But it would mean a lot to Tyrion because all Tyrion wanted for, was for his dad to give him a hug and tell him that he did a good job. It's kind of similar to Stannis as he talks about in the Clash of Kings prologue. As he lists off all the slights that Robert gave him, he goes over and over them. But the one that I think is the most poignant is that he never thanked him for holding Storm's End mm-hmm. and never thanked Stannis for nearly starving to death in order to secure Robert's throne. Here, Tyrion's subconsciousness has him wanting the affirmation of his family, his lover, and Westeros as a whole. I 
love this scene because Tyrion obscures so much of what he wants in like the main narrative with all that sarcasm and that overall sardonic outlook. Even in his own thoughts, he has so many layers that prevent himself from actually saying what he actually wants. And it's so good that here, when all that is stripped away, that we actually see the vision that Tyrion really wants to experience. Look back at what Tyrion says to Varys in in Tyrion's 10th chapter for how he self-conceptualizes himself. The good folk don't have Jaime to protect them, nor Robert, nor Renly, nor Rhaegar, nor their precious knight of flowers, only me, the one they hate. The dwarf, the evil counselor, the twisted little monkey demon. Tyrion has internalized so much of the beliefs that everyone has about him that readers come away feeling like he's just been hardened by the way that everyone regards him. Yet here, when Tyrion's emotional walls are down, when he's in his own dreamlike state where he doesn't have his mind sharpened by his wit, he allows himself to want and desire what he ultimately wants, what so many people in the, around the world want but don't receive. Affirmation. Yeah, I couldn't have put it better. It's a, it seems like a simple thing, but it it really hollows you out hollows you out when you're denied it, as we see with Stannis that you pointed out. And so when, when Tyrion wakes up, he has been moved, without his knowledge or consent, to a smaller and less comfortable room he knows not where. Tyrion senses that he's been politically downgraded long before it's been confirmed to him. He howls in anger, but no one can hear. The effort of it exhausts him. His next dream reflects his diminishing circumstances. He's gone from a victory feast to a dank little cottage by the sea. The walls cracked, just like the one at the start of the chapter. And yet, despite all that, this was the happiest Tyrion has ever been, because this was the place and time he spent with Tysha. She loved him, as he was, for who he was, the only one who did. He loved her back. Per Cormac McCarthy, they were each the other's world entire. Together, they managed to shrink Westeros down to the feel of each other and the sound of the waves. Human nature stripped of shame. Tyrion shed his self-loathing, his certainty that he was made a monster and cursed to be alone. He inherited that certainty from his father, and Tyrion only briefly found peace with Tysha by abandoning his last name. As Tysha says, their names go together. Their first names, not the Lannister bit. If you leave that off, if you, if you forget where you're from, we belong together. Tyrion and Tysha, she says. Tysha and Tyrion. Forever. Just as George held off on Tyrion's name until he took responsibility for what he did, he holds back on Tysha's name until this moment, tying them together. It's a fragile oasis in a world that takes and takes and takes there's a great bit in Gravity's Rainbow, my favorite novel ever, where uh, <laughs> the, a romantic couple has this, this little part, this little kind of house they've taken over in this abandoned town during the Blitz in World War II, where they go illegally just to be together. And Pynchon describes it. It is marginal, hungry, chilly. Most times they're too paranoid to risk a fire. But it's something they want to keep. So much that to keep it, they will take on more than propaganda has ever asked them for. They are in love. Fuck the war. Even here, Tyrion was not able to escape the outside world, the system in which he was raised. He keeps letting the fire go out, because he's used to having servants take care of that sort of thing for him. That's power, but it's also helplessness. He can't even light his own fire. As Tywin says, no one is free. Even the son of the richest family in the land is bound and caged by that responsibility. Tyrion loved and lost, and he still doesn't know the truth of it. He still thinks that Tysha was paid to pretend to love him. <laughs> the full reveal will make clear to him how his need to belong in his family cannot coexist with his need to be loved because his family doesn't love him. They have made him all alone in this world. Yeah, and uh, of the dreams, this one feels the most like a memory rather than Tyrion externalizing his subconscious desires as we saw in the feast. This also serves as the best emotional evidence, in my opinion, that Taisha was not a sex worker that Jamie paid to be with Tyrion, because there does seem to be genuine warmth between Tyrion and Taisha here, and an intimacy that we don't see between Tyrion and Shay, at least not nearly as much, in my opinion. The love and warmth that Tyrion desires in his subconscious, that was real, once in his life with Taisha, but he doesn't know the truth of it, as you said, and all of the ways that Tyrion has internalized how the world perceives him have blinded him to that truth. 
That said, the reason why this particular vision is so vivid here is because of something we've talked a little bit about before, mainly that George had written most of Tyrion Lannister's chapters and Tywin Lannister's death before he finished A Clash of Kings. What this means is that George likely knew he had to ramp up the foreshadowing for Tysha here, as it's the pivotal moment for why Tyrion kills Tywin at the end of A Storm of Swords. That this vision occurs in Tyrion's final chapter in Clash is intended to linger in our minds until Storm and make us wonder about who Tysha was and whether the way she was introduced as a sex worker is truly accurate. All of that meta and all of that foreshadowing aside, I think George does something really interesting with this Cottage by the Sea for Tyrion, this memory here. Obviously, it's Tyrion idealizing a time in his life, and I do think it is probably close to memory rather than some sort of externalization of how he what he actually wants. However, in this reread, I got a glimpse maybe of what George did here, because this is essentially Tyrion's house with the red door, isn't it? It's the place where Tyrion mm. imagines that he was once truly happy, a place of comfort and safety for Tyrion, which is what it represents for Danny and her storyline. That's the house of the red door for her. George has famously said that there are future revelations in store for the house with the red door for Danny, and it dawned on me here that the Taisha Tyrion romance and the revelations that come to Tyrion at the end of a storm of swords is maybe saying is maybe George hinting at not merely the revelations in store for Danny with the house of the red door, but the consequences flowing out from that any future revelations that we'll get in the story. Because as we'll find out in A Storm of Swords, Jamie will tell Tyrion the truth about Tysha, and that revelation will devastate Tyrion. The resulting consequence was thunderous for Tyrion, for Shay, for Tywin, and for Westeros as a whole. Similarly, I think the consequences of future revelations about the house with the Red Door will work similarly for Danny and for Westeros as a whole. I think that's a good connection. That you have this this kind of intimate earlier part of your life that was taken away from you, and the the kind of tremors and ripple effects of that work themselves out when you're an adult in power, and so have political consequences on the lives of everyone else. And Tyrion is kind of you know been put back on his heels, but he's going to try to take power again. Tyrion finally retakes command of his life in this chapter by resisting another dose of milk of the poppy. He's not interested in more dreams. He is ready to wake up. He threatens the maester through hand gestures and what rudimentary words he can manage. What does Tyrion want? A mirror. His dreams were about his fragmented, corrupted identity. Now he needs to, as George puts it, face his face. (laughs) His horrific wound reflects the sense of alienation in those dreams. The better life denied him. The person he wanted to be, but is no longer. As he thinks, would Taisha like my face now? That hints at the deeper question he's really asking. Would she still love the person I have become now that these are my works? Pretty, he croaks sarcastically, a word that speaks volumes. Tyrion has always felt rejected due to his appearance, his failure to live up to Westerosi beauty standards like his siblings. And now, even more so. With the revelation of his face comes the memory of how it got that way. Tyrion now consciously remembers Mandon Moore attacking him. This was the moment of impact that caused the foggy, feverish feel of this chapter, and it ties into all of his dreams. Sir Mandon is one of those dead, those soldiers killed in battle outside the walls, as Padra confirms, and Tyrion almost was one as well. He had no mouth in the dream, the linen covers his mouth in reality. He dreamed of love, but wakes to remember only betrayal, and that's his lot in life. Tyrion learns he has been kicked out of his rooms by Tywin and is now being overseen by Cersei. Only now does he learn how the battle ended that Tywin showed up. Who can Tyrion rely on to help him navigate this labyrinth, especially since he's not at his best? Only Podrick Payne, the one true squire who saved him. The odd boy, as Maester Balabar quite (laughs) cruelly calls him. Tyrion notes that all Podrick's courage and swift action on the battlefield seems to have melted away, and he's he's the same old stumbletongue self he used to be. As I said in Sansa 8, Podrick is not among the heroes of the Blackwater praised endlessly in public, but we saw him be a hero at risk to his life. V- Vara says it so well in the show. Ah, the city won't remember, but we will. This fragile bond saved Tyrion's life. It's why he keeps going where Ned didn't. If only this was truly rock bottom for Tyrion. It's somehow not. Somehow <laughs> things are just going to keep getting worse over the course of A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons.
in that same vein where George was saying that he that Tyrion is his favorite character, it brings to mind this quote that he said when he was just about done, right after he published The Clash of Kings in 1999, in which he was asked who his favorite character was, and he said, Tyrion, he's a villain, of course. And I think here we're seeing what I think is George developing the supervillain story behind Tyrion Lannister. Tyrion is a relatively sympathetic sympathetic character who endangered himself for King's Landing, Westeros, and his family, and has now been constructed confined to darkness, forgotten and erased from historical memory. Given the term supervillain here, I'm invoking kind of that classic comic book backstory work that was instrumental in George's boyhood literary upbringing. Through comics, we found the supervillain origin stories of Joker, Harvey Dent, Thanos, Doc Ock, etc., etc. George takes some of those early influences on A Song of Ice and Fire, and he uses them as building blocks for the type of character Tyrion is likely angling towards, in my opinion. Tyrion has saved King's Landing from Stannis. He was the one who did all the hard work, and now he's isolated and uncelebrated. But that is not the sole building block for Tyrion's turn towards villainy. His family's treatment of him provides the foundation before he's relegated to the darkness. And as we find out in A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons, Tyrion will think memorably, I saved you all. I saved this vile city and all your worthless lives. And all the nobility in turn will condemn Tyrion as a kinslayer and kingslayer, with many of them providing false testimony to implicate the man who saved all of their worthless lives. That's compelling groundwork for Tyrion to be the supervillain he emerges in in A Dance with Dragons. And I don't think we've seen the full extent of that villainy, even as we close the pages of Dance 10 years ago. Come with the Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring, I do think we're going to see that full denouement of Tyrion's character as angling towards supervillainy. I'm right there with you. And speaking of looking ahead, moving on to foreshadowing and groundwork, Tyrion will strangle Shay in a similar manner to how he briefly strangles Maester Balabar. Uh, he grabs Maester Balabar's maester chains and twists them. He will do the same thing to the hand of the king chain around Shay's neck at the end of a storm of swords. So it's uh, it's kind of dreadfully ironic that the way Tyrion seizes control of his life and this chapter seizes control of not just being a helpless patient, is the way he ends Shay's life in A Storm of Swords. So it's always, it comes back to that chain, just like the chain he used at the Blackwater. That's kind of a constant, constant image in Tyrion's story. And of course, as we, as I said before, like George had written Tywin's death scene by the time he published A Clash of Kings, which in my mind implies that he had also written Shay's death scene at the same time. So he was writing these scenes from A Clash of Kings and uses this here as being like, ah, this is going to be something that I'm going to reuse when we get to, to A Storm of Swords with the death of, of Shay, which is really one of the most brutal things that we're going to read in A, in a Song of Ice and Fire. And I am looking forward to and not looking forward to getting that chapter with you a, a few years down the road. Tywin and Cersei do indeed visit Tyrion, as Tywin will relay to Tyrion in his first chapter in A Storm of Swords, because Tyrion has this thing where he imagines that Cersei and Tywin are over him, but he thinks, ah, it's just, uh, I'm just in the dream world right here, because Tywin is so far away, he's in the Riverlands, but no, indeed, Tywin is there, and Tywin does visit Tyrion, at least he claims to, which Tywin says, spare me these coy reproaches, Tyrion, I visit your sickbed as often as Maester Balabar would allow it when you seem like to die. Ah, Tywin, you're so loving and gentle with your son who nearly died to save your grandson's ass and keep him on the iron throne so gentle so lovely father tywin great well, we were talking about affirmation earlier we'll bring that up when we get to a storm of swords and the Tyrion tywin relationship because yeah like tywin did technically do the thing of coming to the deathbed when you're when your son is is in trouble but like he's yeah he's even frowning when when when, when Tyrion sees him there like he's not providing <laughs> the actual love and concern like he doesn't seem to care so what does Tyrion care that Tywin was present at his at his uh, sickbed? Tyrion wants some sign of love and concern from Tywin. Tywin's just, just, just never going to get that to him. And that is what sets Tyrion up in large part on this more kind of villainous arc. Which, mm. in terms of more foreshadowing, might lead to Tyrion might be might lead to Tyrion being guilty for even more deaths in King's, La King's Landing later via Daenerys. That, that image of him walking around piles of the dead and thinking, my work, they died at my command. There was that shot from season 8 of him wandering into like the burning wall of King's Landing after the Danny and her army has been through. But as we've said before, ad nauseum, I think Tyrion will be more directly implicated in uh, the cataclysm at King's Landing, and he will he will either order it in some fashion or be aware of the wildfire and hold that information back, or in, in some way he will not just be a horrified onlooker. He will be implicated, and we'll get the same kind of sentiment, only on a larger scale. Yeah, and you know, thinking about it a little bit more, as we said, it is a dream, but it also is likely foreshadowing as well of what's what's to come in, in, in a dream of spring most likely. And, and I think it's interesting because when we get Sansa's 
memories when when she's thinking about the Battle of the Blackwater and she does walk around the Red Keep. We don't see this like sense of like all these massive funeral pyres that are existing outside of King's Landing. But I do think we're going to see one that will definitely exist at the uh, when, when Daenerys burns King's Landing. But of course, the funeral pyre is not going to be one managed by the Silent Sisters. Instead, it's going to be one that's going to be um, coming at the behest of Dragonfire, specifically on, on the city of King's Landing. So yeah, all good stuff. So that wraps up for Shadowing Groundwork. So talking a little bit about theory and discussion. Again, this is a relatively short chapter. And I figure today we would talk a little bit about Tyrion as Hand of the King, because this chapter has Maester Balabar telling Tyrion that Tywin has now taken residence in the Tower of the Ham, which effectively concludes Tyrion's tenure as Hand of the King. Given this fact, what do we make ultimately of Tyrion Lannister as Hand of the King? And for comparative purposes, was he a better or worse Hand of the King than Ned Stark, the one that you explicitly paralleled in your opening remarks about this chapter? Well, I think both Tyrion and Ned clearly make mistakes along the way that contribute to their ultimate fall from power. And I think both of them make mistakes that are rooted in their personalities and backstories. And they're kind of knee-jerk emotional reactions to things. Ned desperately wants to save the children. Tyrion wants to avoid humiliation. He thinks his reputation is not in his control. And both of them have blind spots that as that are a result of these kind of emotional foundations from their from things that have happened to them in the past. I think that applies to both of them. I think that would apply to anyone in that position or you know, literally any position of power. I do think Tyrion understands the job better than Ned hmm. does. I think Ned, as we touched on a bit when we covered book one, Ned seems to think of the job as Hand of the King as like the king's friend. Like, that's who the hand of the king is. It's like the guy who hangs out with the king and, like, right. you know, drinks with the king and is the king's buddy, which applies personally to him and Robert, sure. <laughs> but Tyrion understands, no, the hand of the king runs the government. That's the mm-hmm. hand of the king's job, especially when the king, as with both Robert and Joffrey, isn't super interested in the mechanisms of government. Then the hand is in charge, as also seems to have largely been the case with John Aaron, although conspiracies flowered under him as well. So I, I do think Tyrion understood the capacities of Hand much better than Ned. I think he understood the the levers of power that this office put into his hands. I think that could be in part because, you know, he saw Tywin do the job, although that was from afar. He didn't exactly get hands-on training experience. Hands I think on. Ned... Hmm? Hands-on. Exactly. Hands-on. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and Ned, of course, was more used to the northern model of justice in which, you know, it is very personal and is kind of more your your uh, your relation to the Stark. And there is not quite as quite as much of a massive bureaucracy in the north, more centered around White Harbors, where you, you see the more modern stuff like in Dance with Dragons. So I think they I think Ned did, as we've said in book one, I think Ned did better than he's given credit for and was undone by some bad luck in certain cases and just the timing of it all. And I think Tyrion does make some obvious mistakes from the get-go that hamper him. But I, I do think, you know, obviously no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. You're going to make some mistakes. Unexpected things are going to happen to you. I do think Tyrion went into the job with a stronger understanding of the job requirements. So I, hmm. I, I give him points overall for that. What do you think? Uh, these are great questions that I that I posed to you, of course. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> of I, course. <laughs> You know, when I first read the books, I, I found Tyrion Lannister to be a really compelling character because I was more aligned to the political storytelling that George was doing in A Song of Ice and Fire. And I really enjoyed Peter Dinklage's work as Tyrion Lannister in, in season two, especially of, of Game of Thrones by the time I had started reading the books. So I, I really thought that Tyrion had succeeded. He had obviously succeeded as, as Hand of the King. But when you come to chapters like this, you start to see, in my opinion, how... Tyrion maybe didn't ultimately succeed. He knew the position better. He had a more cunning mindset. He did things that Ned would never do as Hand of the King as well, both underhanded things as well as kind of clever, cunning things as well. So I, I think like for me, I, I look I, the way I would distinguish it between is like this. Tyrion in the short term did a better job as Hand of the King but then when we get into a storm of swords, we find out that pretty much everything that he did is all going to be swept away by Tywin Lannister, who assumes the kingship. And I think about this in terms of the personal guard. Let's call it the, let's call let's call it the military force that Tyrion and Ned Stark assemble during their their uh, their journeys as Hand of the King. Tyrion has the Mountain Clansmen, the Cell Swords, and he hires a bunch of gold cloaks. Most of these people don't 
serve Tyrion at, at, in A Storm of Swords. Really, really, really Tyrion is left with Bronn and Podrick Payne when we get to a, Storm, to a Storm of Swords. And we find out very early on that the Mountain Clansmen have been sent home by Tywin Lannister when they came demanding their money. Although some of them are still like basically have, have turned into bandits in the Kingswood Forest, those ones that Tyrion sent away. At the same time, and I'm only thinking about this because I did a recent guest appearance on it with our friends Lauren Hands uh, about the Brother of Banners, is that the military force that Ned Stark assembles in Ned's 11th chapter in A Game of Thrones, which became known as the Brother of Banners, still exists and is still fighting and is still ostensibly fighting on behalf of Robert's, Robert's justice, if you want to call it that, but at least Ned Stark's charge to go and pursue the people who are committing war crimes against the Riverlanders. Um, uh, Mostly Greg Gain and Emery Lorch, but there's there's still they basically applied Ned Stark's order and applied it outwards. So I look at it in terms of like Tyrion did a good job in the in the short term as as Hand of the King, but in the long term, I think Ned Stark is ultimately the one who has the more long lasting impact on Westeros because you know this is this is a super unfair comparison because Ned Stark was Lord of Winterfell and was a good man to begin with as well. And Tyrion Lannister was not Lord of Cashley Rock and was not exactly a good man before we got to him in A Game of Thrones. But we, we always come back to this thing when we're comparing Tywin Lannister to Ned Stark and that the mountain clansmen in in, in, a, in A Dance with Dragons are marching for the Ned's girl to try and save her and save Arya in Winterfell, whereas you see all of the the Lannister toadies that, start, that flee Cersei when, when she falls from power. But I think you can kind of apply that to Tyrion as well. When Tyrion is brought down to a low place, we don't see a rallying of the banners of people trying to defend Tyrion's honor and kind of boost him back up and say, like, actually, Tyrion did a really good job. Tywin, and you're a bad dad, too, for that matter. We don't see any of that. And I know there's a lot of contravening narrative reasons why we would never see that because it's Tywin Lannister, of course. But I think that Tyrion did not inspire a long-term political reforms and did not actually bring justice as he said he would bring in his first chapter in A Clash of Kings. And the fact he didn't do that leads to him having a less than stellar impact going forward, both in King's Landing and in Westeros as a whole. Yeah, I, I agree that he, he didn't consider his reputation at all. And, it, you know, in terms of establishing a longer lasting foundation of power, it's, it's, it's definitely not there. I also think, though, that, you know, really Tyrion... Was he supposed to do that? I mean, like, you know, he wasn't supposed to be the hand of the king <laughs> right. permanently. Tywin was supposed to True. take over. So really, his, his, he failed to think about what his next job was going to be, which he's never really had to do that because this is Tyrion's first, you know, job. So, like, he, he didn't really have a whole whole game plan in mind, really, for what's, what was going to happen when Dad came back to town. Whereas Ned, you know, his his... He, it was kind of open-ended. He was, you know, I think in Robert's mind, Ned was going to serve him for the rest of their lives, you know, as his hand at the king. and was going to stay permanently in King's Landing. I think that was supposed to be the goal. So I, I do think, I, I do, I love the nucleus of the Brotherhood without banners, and I think that's Ned's best move. But I also think, like, man, that's that's what you got out of it, is a couple hundred dudes running around in the Riverlands. You were hand of the king. Like, you right. could have, you could have had every, you had everything in your hands. So I... I, I, I am I am frustrated by that aspect, but I also think Ned had his had his heart in the right place when he was making decisions like that. So when he was able was able to effectively wield power, I think it was in a in a much less uh, corrupted fashion than Tyrion. And a lot of this comes down to you know the it's uh, Ned's handship's going to be wiped away because Robert was wiped away, and Tyrion's mm-hmm. handship was wiped away because his king wasn't someone who cared about him. Like you know if, if Joffrey yeah. loved Tyrion and wanted Tyrion's legacy kept around, he could have tried to make that happen. In Storm of Swords and like gotten in the way of this narrative, but he didn't. So that's, you know, that's also it's a, you're realizing this moment where your power rests. Yeah. And power rests ultimately in as a shadow on the wall. Interior mm-hmm. shadow. Ding. Varys, yeah, there we go. Hi, Clint. Uh, ben Varys is, Varys said that Tyrion might cast a very large shadow. And, you know, uh, for the time being, Tyrion is totally encased in shadow as we close his arc in, in A Clash of Kings. He's not long, he's no longer casting the shadow. He's he's in shadow himself. And mm-hmm. we'll see what the type of shadow that he casts when we get to A Storm of Swords, A Dance of Dragons, and of course The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring next week or the week thereafter. So I think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis on A Clash of Kings Tyrion 15. As always, thank you so much for listening and thank you to all of you who are watching for joining us in this final episode on, on Tyrion Lannister and A Clash of Kings. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. 
can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics, viceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Maribel, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Setson Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Fray Pies, Septon Merrifull Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Later Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghost Woods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stone Haven, Defender of the Notar Castle, Septon T Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frost Fangs, Lady Amy Blackfire, Analyzer of Chinese Literature and Dismantler of the Patriarchy, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir Lady, Sir Lady, Jordan Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wide and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you, folks, so very, very much for your support. So join us next week for A Clash of Kings, John 8, in which Corrin Halfhand makes his last stand, and John has to take on a whole new identity. A turncloak, wild thing. Awesome. Cannot wait for this episode. He just got used to his Night's Watch cloak, and now he has to take on a whole new one. Yep, that's going to do a great set of work for John in the Storm of Swords, and a wonderful final chapter in Clash. So we will see you next week for that. 